Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. You know, the default mode network is about having a comfort zone. It's like, we don't get too high. We don't get too low. We live in this comfort zone because our subconscious mind knows that's where we're safe. That's where we're going to survive. We, we survive. We can predict that we're going to survive to the future by practicing things that we've practiced in the past. But that becomes problematic because we're not typically conscious of those uh, that those frameworks that we have, those beliefs that we have. And so subconsciously, we self-sabotage. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeblassingame, and I am your host. Today on our episode of Ask the Expert, we have Arlena Allen. Arlena Allen is a speaker, life coach, and hosts of Sobriety, the One Day at a Time podcast. She has been free from drugs and alcohol for more than 27 years and originally shared her story in season two, episode 71 of the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. She's joining us again today for an Ask the expert, where we discuss the power of the mind. In 2020, Arlena began learning about hypnotherapy, and today she dives into the conscious, subconscious, and unconscious mind. What an awesome conversation. It's probably one of Arlena and my best podcasts together, which we have done quite a few at this point. And I hope that you learn a ton. Hypnotherapy is a really amazing tool for addiction recovery. And Arlena discusses all of the science behind it, why and how we can use it to get better and to get rid of some of those unwanted messages that have just dug their way into the dark corners of our minds. So without further ado, I give you my friend and the expert, Arlena Allen, episode 127. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Alina, I feel like I feel like we're like co-hosts now. I know we totally should be um, because we should do some lives because um, I have gotten so many comments about our episode in the bag of dicks comments. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad. People are like reaching out to me going, oh my God, that was so funny. <laughs> the bag of dicks. <laughs> go to our episode on our Lena's podcast for commentary about bag of said dicks. We won't ruin it for you. Yes. Well, I am having you on today for our version of Ask the Expert, and you have an expertise that I wanted to pick your brain about, and that expertise is hypnotherapy for addiction recovery, yes. Yes. and I know very little about this um, other than what I can sort of other than Imagine. what Hollywood has. Well, no, no, I actually, I, it's more to me, it's more like I can 
I know about a lot of brain science. And so I can imagine how it could do some rewiring if you were able to penetrate certain areas of the subconscious. But again, I don't have anything to back that up. I just am inferring that that must be how it works. But again, such a thing. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That's what I figured, but I I have no idea. So anyway, I don't want to ruin it with my, with my guessing, but how long for a little starters, anyone who, okay. So for people who have not heard any of your podcasts before, can you do a little introduction of yourself, how long you've been sober, where you are? Yeah. So I've been sober for, I got (laughs) my address. So yeah, I got sober at like, and when I say sober, I mean abstinent in on April 23rd of 94. And the attitudes about abstinence have changed dramatically. We know, we now know that harm reduction is a thing and it's a valid path to recovery. But when I first got sober, I didn't know that. <laughs> Actually, you know what's funny is when I got sober, I thought I was walking into the 12-step rooms for five months because I quit drinking uh, on my 25th birthday, I was, which was in November. Um, but I continued on the marijuana maintenance program, as they used to call it, until April. And that was when I started. And I had started going to uh, 12-step meetings and they were talking about you know, quitting everything. And it took me 60 You were like, wait, what? What? I know. I was like, my friend Gina calls us these truths, um, spiritual rudeness. (laughs) They say the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) And that's, I was like, ah, damn it. But anyway, so I started learning about abstinence. And the reason that it was important for me is because I found out later is that your neuroplasticity happens with intense focus followed by a rest period. But when, when you're still, still smoking weed. Yeah. <laughs> or, or it's very difficult them. for intense focus on marijuana in my experience. <laughs> yeah. Personal firsthand experience. Yeah. Hard to maintain that focus. Um, but also your dopamine reward system is very skewed, right? So it needs a period of time with all of those things removed so that it can start to rewire. And so there's, so abstinence for me was super important for those reasons. Now, if you're not there yet, I certainly have no judgment. Stay alive, right? Like I know people who are coming off of op- op- opiates and all kinds of stuff. Stay alive. Yep. <laughs> you never, you know what? You're definitely not going to hit any sort of uh, spiritual plateau or not spiritual plateau. You're definitely not going to hit any, you know, sobriety of any sort if you're dead. So, well, actually not true as well. I should just shut up because that's not... <laughs> As you, you, we can find exceptions for yeah. everything. Well, but they the say, rule, they say every alcoholic gets a sobriety day, right? Do you know this thing? I do not. Every, every alcoholic gets a sobriety. It's just whether or not a sobriety day, it's just whether or not they're alive to experience oh. it. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. But I, I prefer, like, it's hard to evolve if you're decaying. <laughs> there, I like that. Much better. More, much better. More, what I was like that's pretty gross. Let's move on. Yep. <laughs> but oh, so for me, it was like early in recovery, I recognized that I needed to practice abstinence. Cause I remember specifically it was, I had broken up with my boyfriend. I was sleeping on my mom's couch. She had rented my room out and you know, she, <laughs> she yeah, super fun. She needed to give her renter a 30 day notice. I was, slept on my mom's couch for the first 30 days after I 
broke up with my boyfriend and, and uh, I had smoked weed. I was going to meetings, but I smoked weed after about 30 days. And I went, took the dog for a walk. And I re- realized I was like super irritable with my mom and my sister. And I was like, I was like, had my moment of clarity, like another moment of clarity that was like, oh, I get it. I'm powerless over this too. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to quit everything. And that's, and that was when it stopped. So that was April 22nd, the 23rd of like my first full day of abstinence. And, you know, from the first day to the last, um, in recovery, you know, and just like to backtrack just for a second, I was that girl that if it was in a bottle, a bag or blue jeans, I was doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that means what you think it means. Um, because I would use anything to fill the void as they mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. <laughs> with spiritual, physical, whatever. I mean, love addiction, I have found out in recovery is an actual thing and it can kill you because it leads to the same place, yep. which is hopelessness. I am broken. This will never be different. I'm not, It's just like that very dark place of hopelessness. So anything that we use to avoid feeling the pain that we need to process is is what I would consider an addiction. And the purpose of addiction is distraction. And what are we distracting from? We're distracting from pain. You know, Gabor Mate, I think that's how you say his last name. He wrote this book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And doesn't that conjure up images of like your your ghost, your past demons are like trying to get your attention. They have they're trying to tell you something and they're haunting you. It's like memories and images of the past, feelings are haunting you. And there's this weird idea in our culture that time heals all wounds. Couldn't be further from the truth. Time does not heal all wounds. The pain waits and the pain waits until you feel safe enough or you're broken enough to where you finally surrender and you're like, okay, I'm going to deal with this. Right. And so, you know, that's certainly what happened for me. You know, I reached that place where I was, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I start seek, I started to reach out and, and get help. And through a series of events, I met some people who introduced me to 12 step. And and everything I thought my life was over, but it was the beginning. It was and it and it was over. The old life I didn't want anyway was mm-hmm. over. They I walked into these rooms and they were like, all you have to change is everything. And I was like, girl, sign me up. There's nothing I want. There was I hated who I was. I didn't want anything about it, right? So I had no issue with that. And then they were like, Oh, you got to do these steps. And there's this four step that people relapse over all the time. And it was like, What? I get somebody has to sit and listen to me complain about all the wrongs that people, what? This is the best deal in town. Like they're doing this so that they can stay sober. I don't know what you're talking about, but <laughs> sign me up. License to bitch. And so that's what I did. I love it. I did all the things. I did all the things. I was so desperate to be any anybody else but me. And ironically, once I like scraped away all my crappy coping mechanisms, all that was left was my innocence. I was just Mm. trying to get my needs met. There is a song by Enigma called A Return to Innocence. And that was my mantra when I first got sober. I played it over and over and over again. Don't be afraid to be weak. Don't be too proud to be strong. Oh, I'm going to have a feeling. It makes me like, oh my God, because in the beginning... I was so terrified. I thought I had, I was like, oh my God, I have, I have, I didn't know what I was grasping onto. All that I knew is that I couldn't do what I was doing anymore. It's crazy. But, you know, recovery has been amazing. I got really lucky. I met my husband when I was five months sober and we've been together for 27 years. So, so far, so good. 
I keep telling him we're off to a good start. Yeah, we're off to a great start. Right? <laughs> a great mm-hmm. start. Yeah. Yep. We just celebrated 24 years married and awesome. You know, life is good today, right? Like I and y'all get to do the work that I love most in the world. And I over the 27 years that I have been sober, I have been an obsessive learner. I'm fascinated by the neuroscience of addiction and recovery, more importantly. It was important for me to understand why this was happening to me and others, right? Like what is mm-hmm. the brain chemistry? What is the psychology behind it? You know, where are the errors in our thinking so that we can, you know, correct those errors, you know, Mm -hmm. and and what I found was that science had a way of positioning the information that depersonalized it. I wasn't a piece of shit trying to get better, right? I was Mm -hmm. a sick person trying to get well, right? It was love and compassion. Like I heard you can't hate yourself well, right? And so, but, but when I discovered these, quote, character defects, you know, I was like, you know, it was felt a little shamey. I'll be honest. It felt a little shamey, but then, you know, uh, through love and compassion and some wise people, I I realized that, oh, these are my natural instincts that are just out of balance. I was in fear. And they worked at some point. And they did. Yeah. Oh, thank you for saying that because you know what, when I was 14 years old, if I, I had to, I had to use drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism, because if I had to feel all the things I was feeling, I don't know that I could have survived that. I almost right. didn't anyway. Right. 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 So, they worked at some, they, they, you know, I always talk about like, we hired them a job and hired them to do a job. And at first that's the right fit for that job. And then eventually we, we grow up, we move, we, you know, whatever it is, we age out and we are still using the same old thing for a job that's changed. It no longer works anymore. And that's when you get the, that's when you really get this, this situation where you're like, I can't live with it. I can't live without it. Yeah. And and really, and that's a great way to put it. And really what I learned was, is that I developed coping skills as a child, survival skills, mm-hmm. right? Like disassociation, detachment. My favorite. That all right. Denial, denial of my feelings, um, self-sacrifice, self-betrayal. I would sell myself out to get what I thought I needed all the time, all the time, self-abandonment, all that stuff. Those became my, it was a trauma response, right? Those were my survival skills. But what I learned is that they don't translate into healthy adult relationships. For instance, I need to be you know, the opposite of disassociated is like being in touch with my feelings, Mm. my thoughts, my feelings, my wants, needs, desires. I need to be in touch with that in order to be able to communicate that to others. Like I'm not really comfortable with this, right? But to be able to say that, I first have to recognize that I'm uncomfortable with something that like my boundaries are being crossed for some reason, right? But I grew up as such a codependent. It was like my my self-care was not the priority. It was like, let me make sure, let me deny self and make sure that you are happy so that I can get what I need from you. That's a child's perspective because as a child, we're not in control of our, our environment, right? So, but we, so we learn to seek outside of ourselves for our internal needs, yep. right? So that's why it doesn't translate into a, a healthy adult relationship because I need to be able to tell you, oh, I'm not really comfortable with this or that, or, you know, I was upset when you were late or, you know, and that's not a relation. And, and here's the funny thing. It's relationship shaping, not ending because for me right, it was right. like I would I like go that. from Shaping. doormat 
right? I'd go yeah. from doormat to dictator. I would stuff my feelings, stuff my feelings, stuff my feelings. And then one day it was just like someone was five minutes late. And I'm like, F you, you're out of my life. The guillotine. <laughs> Are you familiar right. with the guillotine? Yep, yep. <laughs> that was my coping skill, the guillotine. But pretty soon, uh, if you cut everybody out of your life, you're alone. So there's that. Right, right. Yeah. So not not conducive to healthy relationships. So that was that was kind of the the framework for me. As I uh, when I was 25 years old, I recognized that I was having unhealthy relationships, and I didn't know what the answer was. I spent two years in the self help section at Barnes and Noble trying to get you know, six pack abs and seven spiritual laws to money and, and all that. I thought it was love or money that was going to save me, but <laughs> I mean, isn't it? <laughs> We're going to have to talk after this. <laughs> right. Right. So, so yeah. it's, and, and one of the, so you have a podcast called Odat chat one day at a time, uh, podcast I actually changed it to just one day at a time because apparently nobody knows what Odat means. That's right. Right. That's right. So one day at a time as your podcast yeah. and, yeah. and you've had some incredible speakers on there. Um, and you also have a coaching program, which you in the past year have added hypnotherapy. Yes. Because what I have found is that sometimes people's self-esteem is so low because of the addiction and their behaviors. They've fallen into these beliefs about who they are, what they feel they deserve, what they're capable of, what the is the world a good place or not. We've made decisions about ourselves in the world from this brain that is under the influence of drugs and alcohol, right? Or the childlike mind. So, so all your thoughts and beliefs are established before you're six years old. And so when you're oh, six God. years, isn't that crazy? I have one year left with my kids. <laughs> well, you can continue to shape it, but okay. it's, you know, it, what's really interesting. So that's when your default mode network in neuroscience terms is established. And that, you know, is about like your personality and things like that. But what's interesting is like, I would never let a six-year-old make decisions about who my friends are, what, where I go to work, whether I go to school or not, whether where I should invest my money. But that's essentially what we're doing when we don't do the examination of what our belief system really is. We just, it's a belief because we assume that our thoughts are true, right? We don't really take the time to examine whether the beliefs that we're operating from are actually true or not. Right. Right. Uh, you know, we have, so the brain's job is to be efficient. Right. And so what it does is it makes it, you have an experience, you tell yourself a story about it, you come to a conclusion, but we have what's called a negativity bias. We, it's easier to believe the negative than it is the positive. And we're also, everyone to, does that. Everyone has that. I mean, like, so here's an example. You could get a hundred compliments, but you hear one criticism and what do you focus on? But are some people born with the ability to see it differently? I think it depends on the situation. There, You know what always amazes me is that there are some people who grow up well-adjusted. I have no idea how that happens. Did you read Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights? Oh my God, I just heard about it again today. So I you guess I need must... to read. And, and I highly suggest listening to it on audio because he reads it, which makes it just so much better. And I was like, okay, Matthew McConaughey, like, yes, 
would I have all of his children and marry him forever? (laughs) Of course. I mean, that's obvious and just a given, but I think I was like, but I'm, you know, curious, listen to this book. I'm telling you, I I'm going to listen to it again. And I don't listen to. Wow. Really? It is fucking phenomenal. Like I'm (laughs) actually embarrassed with how much I liked it. And, and one of the things that I took, gives me hope. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. One of the things that I took from it that was really interesting was if you or I had grown up or half the people we knew, or maybe more, the like and experienced the things he experienced, our viewpoints, like they would not have been what his were. He and I found that to be fascinating. Here's a person who experienced stuff that I've I've heard, you know, um less traumatic, equally traumatic and more traumatic in my day. And excuse the um, light that keeps like popping out by my head. <laughs> saw that I'm all really, that. It's really good. But here's a guy who his, his outtake, his outtake, his outlook on these circumstances that happened were at the time and moving through life is such that he had some, uh, his brain told him whatever it is that you're talking about, which is like, it's not in the positive, in the positive. He saw situations where you and I would have been like, yes, no, that's going to be like, I can't forever. Yeah. Like, like one, like, like, you know, he would have, he would see it the other way where 300 people would tell him it was terrible, but three people would say that it was great. And that's who he paid attention to like situations. And, and since he was a little kid and it really made me think a lot about whether or not some of us, cause he has siblings too, that aren't necessarily that way. So it wasn't like, is kind of an anomaly, but really yeah. made me think about what is it that makes Like, are there some of us who don't feel that way? Because I know the most of us do feel that way. Most of us tune negative, but are we, you know, is that nature or nurture? Yeah. So it it was funny that you say that because my mom sort of developed this well-adjusted positive outlook on life. And I think it developed over time. You know, she's now like extremely positive. She had sort of a, um, we'll call it like a near death experience where she had a brain tumor. And after the brain, after she had the surgery, it was like benign, but they had to do brain surgery. It was pretty traumatic. She was just like, you know what? I'm just going to focus on the positive. Right now it's like super annoying because every day is fantastic. And you can't talk to her about anything negative because she's like, she likes to do the spiritual bypassing thing and just go straight to the positive. Right. Right. I am aware that there, and that's definitely a coping skill. I was just curious if you came across anything in your studies about that, like, or yeah, some, there's definitely some or people, some people like just, but that's like a, a complete denial of reality is also like what we're, what we're accustomed to is extreme thinking. Right. Right. So extreme thinking. So some people are extreme positive and that can be helpful to a degree, but it all, it also can be, it also can be very detrimental because it's important to acknowledge reality on some level. Like, like, it, it, it can be pathological too, right? Like <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's hard to connect with somebody who doesn't acknowledge or experience pain because you don't connect. I mean, trauma right. bonding is a term for a reason. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's, it just depends. So yes, there are people that are like that. I've, I've seen them, you know, I, I have one in my life, but she wasn't always that way. <laughs> I'll just say that. She wasn't always that way. I tell my kids, I go, you know, that sweet little lady who comes to visit you. That is not the bitch that raised me. <laughs> but that, I know, I, I, I haven't told my children yet, but I plan to. Um, yeah. 
about my mom, but the, but that is learned. That's through the work we're talking about. I'm talking about the people who were born that way. Yeah, there are. However, those people are not listening to this podcast. I would imagine. <laughs> right. So I'm not sure if we need to talk about that. Eric, that is the most reasonable thing I've heard. Okay. <laughs> moving on, moving on. You're right. They are not. You're totally right about that. Okay. Yeah. So so what I really, negative. Yeah. So what I really want to talk about is like the subconscious mind and how it's ruling your life. Like what right. rules your life is your brain, right? That's why the neuroscience of addiction is so fascinating to me. And it's really, it really all stems from our beliefs. And if we can change our beliefs, then it changes everything else on the outside. So just a fun little just a fun little exercise. If you take a look at the things around your life, your environment, your relationships, the career, your bank account, the number on the scale, I hate to point out that, but that's something I think everybody struggles with. That is a reflection of what you believe you deserve. We only allow into our lives what we believe we deserve on a subconscious level, right? And so... And mostly our beliefs are designed to protect us. So sometimes we come to conclusions about things that are inaccurate. For instance, I had this weird belief. I had this fear that if I became financially successful, that something bad would happen to my family. Like that the universe has this balance and that when you get something really good to seek balance, something bad has to happen to balance it out. Right. That was just like this belief that I had in, in my mind. And so without being conscious of that belief, that created internal drag in my life. Mm. Like a you ever see those race car, those sprint car drivers, they have these cars go super fast and then they have like the parachute that comes out to stop them. Mm -hmm. So this is what we see with people who are self-sabotage practice self-sabotaging behaviors, like you know, three steps forward, two steps back, that kind of thing. It's like, we, we have these subconscious beliefs that acts like a drag. And the reason we do that is because we li all live within this, you know, the default mo mode network is about having a comfort zone. It's like, we don't get too high. We don't get too low. We live in this comfort zone because our subconscious mind knows that's where we're safe. That's where we're going to survive. We, we survive. We can predict that we're going to survive to the future by practicing things that we've practiced in the past. But that becomes problematic because we're not typically conscious of those, uh, that, those frameworks that we have, those beliefs that we have. And so subconsciously, we self-sabotage to keep us stuck. That's where like the fear, self-sabotage, all those things come in. And so my work is really about how do we how do we get into the subconscious mind and and make ourselves feel safe change some of those belief systems to support the goals that we have in our life like we want to be healthier we have, we want to make more money we want to keep more money right it's not mm -hmm. necessarily making money right cuz sometimes you can make money but if your internal belief system says that having money means more responsibility and if you have a belief that you are not responsible or capable of handling said money or that something bad will happen if you have money, you will subconsciously find ways to get rid of it, right? 
um, I recently had a, a conversation with this gal that that helps me. And we were talking about, you know, I've been trying to write this book and the book project is going so good now that I've released some internal drag. What I didn't realize is that, you know, I've heard, you know everyone hears about like in recovery about doing inner child work, right? Mm-hmm. You need to make mm-hmm. your, when you're scared, you need to make your inner child feel safe. Well, what we realized also is that if I'm successful, that's when I abandon my inner child. And so if I'm going to abandon myself when I'm successful, guess what my subconscious mind is going to do? It's going to self-sabotage, right? Because that inner child, that part of me does not want to be abandoned or denied, right? So I had this thing of like, I identified early in my recovery of this core feeling of not being good enough. And what the, and then, you know, the dots started getting connected later. Good enough for what? Well, good enough to be seen, good enough to be heard, good enough to be understood because I had this core belief that I was bad, right? Like I had sexual abuse when I was a little girl. So I had this very deep seated belief that I was bad. I used to joke around about it when I would speak at meetings. I'd be like, oh, I decided since I couldn't be good, I'd be good at being bad and like make a joke out of it because that's what I do. I don't feel my feelings <laughs> just easier <laughs> to cover everything up with the jokes. Hence the dicks jokes that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> I stand by the the use yeah. of humor. All roads lead back to the yeah, dick joke. yeah, hilarious, hilarious. Yeah. However, so very so that's you know that's part of the subconscious work is identifying and reframing those limiting beliefs, and the way we do that. So there, listen, there are so many different modalities for healing, right? But what I'm really focused on these days is what how do we treat the persistent, pervasive, reoccurring traumas. And it can be through benign neglect, right? Like there was a lot of it. Like I'm 50, I'm almost 53. There were a lot of us who were like latchkey kids when we were growing up. And so we experienced a lot of trauma from benign neglect. Like our parents had to go, my mom had to go to work. My parents were divorced. My mom had to go to work. I had a great dad, but he was at work too, right? And so we were latchkey kids and some things happened, right? That really shouldn't have. I have talked to women who've had persistent um, childhood sexual abuse over years, right? And that does a number uh, on it. And on that, lots of lots of uh, women who experience, uh, most women in recovery have experienced some sort of sexual trauma. And so what happens is weight gain is a very common side effect of um, sexual abuse because it's insulation, it's protection. It's a, you know, it's it like, and it's so funny because every human being has a need to be, seen and heard and loved and accepted just as they are. But if you've had systematic, persistent, pervasive abuse, then you don't want anyone to see you. Like being seen, like people have problems in social situations. People feel like they don't belong, right? That feeling like I I had that feeling and, you know, before I found sobriety, it was just like, I didn't fit in. I felt like like that imposter syndrome, like... I didn't belong anywhere. Like everyone else had the manual for life except me. Like this feeling of outsiderness, otherness. Something that that I've been um, looking into lately as it relates to, I have like two. So one, as it relates to, to weight and food and that kind of thing, I've been looking a lot of like, what are the messages? What are the things that, you know, that, that I've struggled with in my own life? And one thing that's interesting to me, you, I've been on social media. We, it's not 
I don't know that it's more than it ever was, but it's just, I've just noticed it is how many women, you know, go missing or attacked or, you know, all the things that are going on and with regard to, you know, what's called femicide and it's not new by any stretch, but, you know, one of the thoughts I've had over the years was I'm not is, you know, that I didn't have when I was younger was like, oh, I'm not a target. And, Mm. and I was looking at, I was reading something about, there was a case on, on um, a woman in London, Sarah something. And, and they were talking about that or talking about like this mindset that women have about like the double-edged sword of being seen and how, and, and, and I wondered if, um, you know, there, there's a meme that goes around, like, you know, I'm overweight because I'm, it makes me harder to kidnap. And there's like different things. And, and I wondered how much, you know, of all of these underlying ideas of safety, just, you know, actual safety come into play with these decisions that we make over time. And I think a lot of it's normalized. Uh, A lot of it is, is, and I, I, one thing that you might be able to speak to, about hypnotherapy, which is that the brain, the, I'm sorry, the eyeballs are actually part of the brain. Like they are actually the, it's not it's just neural it, tissue. Yeah. It's neural tissue. That's what it is. It's neural tissue. Yeah. Right. And, um, and you know, I knew that it gave information to the brain. I, but I didn't know it was neural tissue. And so what we see, thank you, Dr. Andrew Huberman. <laughs> Oh, is that what it is? Oh, yeah. dang it. Um, yeah. yeah. So the eyes, there we go. So it's neural tissue. That's must've been where I heard that. Yeah. And so I was thinking a lot about that. I thinking a lot about like the information you're put, what you're telling your brain visually, what we, what the world tells our brain visually and all those things and kind of how that works into coping mechanisms, addiction, relationships. And, and then uh, of course, as we arrive on, on hypnotherapy, which is about, a, a using, using that tissue to get to a deeper part of the brain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's so interesting is that, so let's talk about this in the framework of threes. So okay. there's the conscious, the conscious mind, the unconscious mind and the subconscious, wait, conscious, unconscious, subconscious. So the conscious mind, you and I are talking now, right? Yeah. The subconscious and it, and it can process about seven to nine bits of information per second. Okay. Uh, the subconscious mind, the subconscious mind is pr- processing millions of bits of information. And because there's, and it's coming in through the eyes, like you were saying, right? Like mm. we're assessing our external world and our experience, and um, it has to filter out what's important. And it bas- it basically filters out what's important based on safety. Mm. Like what's in, like what we tell it is important. Like, uh, what's interesting is so like, if you ever go shopping for a car and you're like, I'm going to buy a, I'm going to buy a blue truck. And so you're driving around like all of a sudden all you see blue trucks everywhere because yeah, you've, yeah. Told, you've told your subconscious mind to look for it. And so right. now you're, were they there all along? Absolutely. You That's just didn't the, notice Malcolm it. Malcolm Gladwell you, talks about that, right? Yeah. You just didn't notice it because you weren't, you weren't focused on it. It's the focusing your attention on what you do want. Right as opposed to what you don't want. And the the barrier between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind is this idea called the critical factor, right? That's your subconscious mind. That's your analytical brain deciding what's important or not. And it bases what's important or not based on your past experiences. 
of what's Mm. safe, what's not safe. We catalog all this information, right? And so it's pulling from the database from your past, right? Question. Yes. Past, do past experiences count as things that are we counting things we've seen? So maybe I haven't experienced it, but I've heard it in a story. I've seen it on television. I've seen it, you know, like, can that, is that factoring in? Cause I think that would expand the amount of information your brain is thinking about given things it's seen. Because yes, because it's uh, it's relative experience. It's not okay. personal experience, okay. but okay. we imagine what it would have felt like. Right. Okay. So it's and we rel- internalize it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We do internalize that. So that's the con- conscious mind versus subconscious mind, and it's the critical factor that decides what comes in. It allows in information that is already in alignment with current beliefs. So, mm. for instance, this is this is why people get so crazy around politics, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even matter what side you're on. It's like you we make up our minds about what is true, and then we only allow into our lives what we what already agrees with our position. So. Confirmation oh my bias. God, I'm for confirmation bias. Thank you. That's what confirmation bias is. And what we do is we deny or discredit all information to the contrary, mm. because it actually takes the brain too much energy mm-hmm. to try to re or if we were swayed every five seconds by information that came in, our brains would constantly be in a state of rewiring. It's like at some point, you know, what's interesting. The brain consumes 80% of the glucose that you ingest. Yes. So your brain consumes a lot of energy and, and so it needs a way to stay firm and out of self-protection, right? Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change, and I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. You know, what's funny is that I am a, like I joke, I'm a radical centrist and, (laughs) and, and that I, I often can, I will 
I will like put myself in both sides of any, you know, I'm, I'm regularly called on to mediate, you know, various scenarios and, you know, give advice because I think about, I can put myself in both sides of the situation. One of the things that I found in 2020 was that I was, that the, that the exhaustion from that, that, yeah. that kind of normal process yeah. that I have always had and been like kind of naturally been able to go, well, if I look at it from this way, and if I look at it from this way, and my, my thing is, if I believed what they believed, then what they're doing makes sense. Right. That's how, that's how I always, and then I, then I moved to, okay, how do I get to the belief? And, and I, in 2020, I had the thought, you know what? I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. And I literally was like, I'm just going to believe, like I thought to myself, I'm just going to keep my beliefs to this because it's easier and simpler. And I just won't talk about it too much. And I'm just not going to try to absorb. And I literally did the thing where you're like, I can't absorb any more information. I can't debate this in my head any longer. I can't listen to any more points of view. I'm losing my marbles. And so that dis and, but all of that is Critical. I thought it's your experience. Yeah. It's critical. It was, I was saying to myself, I'm just going to decide to believe this because it's so much easier than trying to like be, you know, every, understand every point of view and learn everything about everything and blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, no, I'm just going to like believe this and that's it. And, you know, put my blinders on. I've never done that in my life. And where I've made, like where I thought I was making a conscious decision to not take in any more information. And I very much can see having had that experience, I think naturally my tolerance for that rewiring you're talking about where it's like back and forth, I think my tolerance is pretty high for that. And I, I hit my limit on it and I can see how, depending on whatever your tolerance is, why that would be the case, because it is exhausting, absolutely maddening and exhausting. But then we create you know, the world where we don't let any new information in, or how do you, you know, like, like, I, I mean, in all fairness to you, we, there is a point of diminishing returns. I mean, that's what I felt like, but, but yeah, but my tolerance, my particular tolerance is, is pretty high. I, I, but it gave, you know, a lot of the time I don't, there are things I don't have perspective on. Right. And, and so something like that, like, how could you just negate other new information? Right. How could you just mm-hmm. negate new information? And <laughs> the truth of the matter is there is no new information. It's all the same shit. You. It's just right. happening to different people. Right. Right. There right. is no new information, but how uh, new information to you, right? How could you negate? Like, why would you, if you learned this and then this came in, my, my whole thought was like, why not take it into consideration? And if you're, if what we're talking about, right. And we're talking about this as it relates to emotions, but if what we're talking about is this brain's tolerance for that rewiring, that energy capacity, right? So depending on how much else, how much, how often you're in survival mode, what your cortisol levels are, how much recovery you have, what, like all the things, right? So if you're to- depending on what your tolerance is for that, it makes complete sense that your brain is like, yeah, we're going to stick to this because we know what this outcome is. And that's, you know, whatever that is, is more dangerous and why it's so difficult to rewire the brain. Particularly when you think about from our brain, our brains were adapted to be in a primitive world where there wasn't. So the reason I asked about the imagery and, and so I'm going to 
get pulled over by a police officer. And maybe I'll think to myself, oh, I remember that car chase. I could get away, you know, or whatever. Like, I mean, I'm not, but you, or you'd think, oh, that, that girl in London, she got pulled over and, and it wasn't a real cop and they abducted her, the cop abducted her. Or yeah. I'll think, I'll think about all these things I've read and seen and heard and, but none of them have happened to me. And in a primitive yeah. world where our brains were, you know, meant to function, we didn't have all that stimuli to try to manage a belief system. Right. So have you seen, to- have you seen uh, the social dilemma? I have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Because they talk about, they talk about that, how the brain is primitive and our society has developed, uh, progressed faster than our brain has had an opportunity to develop. So what you're you're talking about is rewiring the brain back to what is our real actual experience, right? That's kind of what you're saying is like, well, I'm, I'm suggesting that we re we, we wire, (laughs) we we wire our brain to release the emotional triggers that are not useful to us that are holding us back. Right. So we, we rewire and release what's not useful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're talking this in context of trying to get sober, trying to resolve uh, and metabolize past childhood trauma, right? Because, you know, addiction isn't, isn't, it's not about drugs and alcohol. It's about why the pain, why are we using drugs and alcohol or food or sex or shopping or whatever to try to manage our emotions. And so, you know, we're talking about emotion management, which begins in the subconscious mind, right? But first we have to bypass something called the critical factor, right? That's the guardian to your subconscious mind. And then the third part of the brain that we haven't discussed yet is the unconscious mind, which is your body. People often think of, you know, the brain and the skull. We talk about the mind as like this conceptual, you know, thinking thing. That's not just your brain. Like your brain's job is to think, right? And, but there is a mind or a spirit that is aware that the brain is thinking, right? So, People think of like the body-mind connection, which is kind of silly if you think about it, because as your brain, your physical brain sits in your skull, it also has a brain stem, right? The brain stem goes down the center of your back and your spinal column. And what is your spinal column? It's a collection of nerves that transfer information from your body to your brain. So it's really neural tissue that goes all your body, your, your whole body is innervated with nervous tissue. What about right. your, what about the, the gut has a lot of, oh my God. Yeah. They say that there's just as many neurons in your gut as there are in your brain. They're, but it's not neural tissue, but it's neurons. Yeah. But I don't know how that's not neural tissue, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it, there's a lot of interesting um, studies about, you know, there's more like all the serotonin is produced in the gut. And yeah. Yeah. You know, that's So the interesting thing is the body is conditioned by the mind right? We have experiences. You put your hand on a hot stove, then, you know, anytime you get near something hot, I mean, if you've ever like bumped up against something like a radiator or something that was hot, you instantly jerk back. Like you didn't have an opportunity to think about, mm-hmm. oh, that's hot. I should move away from it. It's like your body viscerally responds to the things, right? Like you have an experience and your body will viscerally respond to certain things. And if you try to override it, it's not just your body viscerally responds. And I've done this, my 
obviously my husband, I did this with at the James, um, Jack Daniels distillery. They, they, you have the mash and they do this, this challenge, whatever. And it's like, you literally walk up to it and the smell is so strong. You physically move back. Right. So they have this challenge to see like how long you can hold your face to it. And I remember like, I'm going to win, you know, like that, my brain, <laughs> right. Like, determined, persistent. Yeah, Jack and I were yeah. like, we're going to win. Obviously we're going to do Obviously. this. Your, your body, our, our physical response to smell. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there was no mind over matter with that. Like I could not do, and, and with heat or with other various stimuli, like there is a, 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 you know, that, that subconscious truth, right? A subconscious protection, a subconscious thing that if anybody's of you have ever uh, jumped out of an airplane, it kicks in right, right about as you're looking down, it's going, it's, it's going, I mean, I'll never forget the door opening on the airplane and you're my, my, my hands are flooding right now. My, my brain had signed up for this paid yeah. money, you know, a, your conscious mind, my yes. conscious mind had paid money, gotten on an airplane, signed away my life, done it with friends. Right. And they open the door, Arlena, and the physical body is like, are you fucking kidding? Like the door opens. <laughs> yeah, and on there, you know, you have those situations where you're like, you are not in control of the physical response. That is a, that is a, a, an, a intellig- an intelligence, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it is right. It's an intelligence, right? My mom yeah, says that was an intelligence. Yeah. It's an intelligence that's going to show up whether you want it to or not, whether you're saying it's fun, it's da, 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 da. And that was so, I mean, that reminds me so much of the using stuff where we're doing these things. You're like, no, this is fun. We're going to, I'm going to, you know, whatever. And the body is saying I'm under stress. This is stress. This is scary. Creating, creating that. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about the smell. It's so funny to this day, if we're driving down the road and there was a skunk that has been hit, I go, Oh my God, this smells so good. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me get right? yeah. really, I'm like, my body just relaxes just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Hangs out, whatever. I was like, I'm hungry. Is anyone else hungry? <laughs> or is me. Like I'll get that when I get like a nasal drip down the back of my throat or like, yeah. you know, just like let's weird. Let's not, not trigger anything. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. But, but <laughs> again, far. it's like, it's, we, you and I are decades, you know, you know, decades away from decades away from it, from it. And these are things that are not related. They're not yeah. part of it. There's no visual stimuli, but it is a, it's a physical it's a primordial. It's in your brainstem. All that stuff is wired in, into your brainstem right? It's just so fascinating. So your body is the unconscious mind. And so what that says is that we can actually, like we have, we're always conditioning, right? So we are either conditioning ourselves for success or failure in like the most simplest of terms, right? No, we're not ever conditioning for stability. Well, success is stability. Okay. Like like if we talk in terms of like emotional sobriety, emotion management, you know, or being control of your emotions so that you can achieve your goals, you know, that is, you know, considered stability in my mind. Yes. And so, so you're, we're working with these sort of like three parts. Right. And so in recovery, we're trying to rewire our dopamine reward system. We're reprogramming our sleep patterns. We're uh, retraining, you know, our, our bodies to notice what real danger is. We're, we're noticing boundaries like from emotions and 
um, or, you know, those of us that had to grow into these, develop these empathic sort of uh, intuition or, or um, skill superpowers, you know, people who grew up in threatening childhood environments have to learn how to really be sensitive to other people, right? Because there, there's a fear factor there, right? So, yeah, in that in our body, there's that book of the body keeps the score, right? It's it's very um, it's all tied together. So people think of the brain and the body as separate, but it's not. Your entire body is infused with nervous tissue, right? Your whole body. You know, we think it's. I was so surprised when I heard Dr. Andrew Huberman talking about, oh, your brain is neural tissue. Like, oh my god, that's such a trip. We don't think yeah, about that if you took away bone, blood, and organs and veins, what would be left? It'd be a silhouette of your body because your nervous tissue is in your whole body. So the brain-body connection, it was like, duh. Of course right. your brain and body are connected. Well, I mean, it's like, um, it's like I, went to, I went to this convention and I realized, and this never occurred to me, but dental, like insurance, our medical system separates dental oh, yeah. from healthcare from, you know, yeah. vision, from your eyes. Yeah. Vis- yeah, vision. I mean, think about that. Vision yeah, is three neural tissue. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and dental and dental, if you get an infection in your tooth, it can go straight to your heart. Like there's all sorts, it's in your head. It's yeah. in your, it's next, it's, is close to your sinuses. But if you have ear, nose and throat, like that's under, and, and I mean, we don't have a dentist in the ER. We don't have, you know, just really interesting things. It's how we, yeah. we take parts of our, I mean, my favorite, this is my absolute favorite that we separate mental health and addiction. I'm like, who have you met? Who has a substance use disorder? Who is not struggling with mental health? Here's let's take that one step further. Everybody has mental health, Right. Mental health. Well, Every person on the planet has yes. a, it's a spectrum, right? It's has right. a degree of mental health. I should say mental right. illness, mental illness. I have never met a person in all my years since I was, frankly, since I started using, but let's say since I was 15 years old, who was utilizing drugs and alcohol or any kind of process thing as a coping mechanism who wasn't struggling with at minimum depression and anxiety ever. Not one person I can think of who did not, that was not encompassed in their mental illness thing, but we separate those things. And so, so this is kind of what you're talking about, which is like this idea that the, you know, kind of what you're doing is you're saying the first thing we have to do is recognize it's all one, right? It's It's like, that's the first almost like step one, right? Is yeah, like, and that it's about mechanics too, that it's not personal. It's like, you're not a bad person, right? Let's, let's talk about, let's put it in terms of science because that sort of depersonalizes it. That's like right. a step that people can sort of assimilate and digest. So it's a little more palatable than you're a horrible person or that you have character defects, right? That you're right. Um, mentally ill or whatever. Right. It's like, oh, I get it. You you de- you were you were in a stress situation. You developed coping skills that are now dysfunctional and you're suffering. You're suffering. That's what I care about. I care about the suffering. And I was just recently... You know, it's easy to get lost in science and, you know, work and do all this stuff. And then you hear a story and then you connect with a person 
you know, this, this gal that, uh, she's volunteered to be a case study for this, this book that I'm writing. It's, it's all about how, how do we treat that long-term pervasive, persistent conditioning? It's physical conditioning. It's mental, emotional. It's like the whole thing. Financial, right? With financial conditioning too, probably. Yeah. All of it. Right. Like she's got some serious food addictions. She's got finance addiction. She's like, she does shot like all these things, but why she was systematically abused by her stepfather for years. Her mother knew about it and actually, you know, did things like reminded her, like she would check her to make sure she wasn't wearing underwear before she went to bed. I can barely speak about, I mean, that's what, that's the kind of thing it's like, but what, and then you go further, right? She's the one I want to help. It's like, and we're all, it's like the suffering. What, what? So, but then you go further, right? And this is where, this is where I get in trouble, which is as a mother, you and I are both a mother and you know, I'm a sister, you're a sister. The idea that you could do that to your daughter. What is it in your brain that you're so afraid of being alone, of being left, exactly. of being abandoned, that you could override that that the, 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 the kind of, what's it, the melding, the, the fabric of your child as part of you to, to do something, to deliberately hurt them so significantly is yeah. so like, to me, I, so profound. I mean, that the, the sickness is so profound, right? So you have the conditioning of the child who uh, had to adapt to a horrific situation. Then you have the person who facilitates and allows. And to me, I, I often, you know, this is the part that I think a lot of people don't do. This is where I get into that kind of, you know, putting myself in people's shoes is, oh my God, what could possibly have happened to me? Cause that mom, that happened to her that she was, that's a, that's a coping mechanism because she didn't want, she didn't want stephusband to leave. So you, you, you go, it's when you go to the generational level, you, you see how you see how the coping mechanisms that are passed down, they translate, right? But it, it could have been just love addiction in, you know, one, in one generation, right. Where it's just like, does anything so, so, so boyfriend or husband doesn't leave. Then you see what it comes down to the next generation of they, they enter a new circumstance. Does anything so husband won't leave. And then, you know, what, and then, and then what they say is in terms of intergenerational trauma is that the alcoholic addict, the addict is the person who stops, you know, is the ending of the cycle because they blow, they blow all the secrets out of the water. They, they, they refuse to play by the rules. They, they just inundate themselves. They become this gaping wound for the family. And so they open up this Pandora's box. And so typically if you can end that in the intergenerational trauma, if you can end that addiction there, it is the thing that saves the family. The whole family. It is the thing that saves the whole family. So here's the good news. The good news is like, this can be healed, right? This can be healed. It, it can take, I, I'm all about a multidisciplinary of, of modalities, right? There's many things that we can do that, you know, many quivers, many arrows in the quiver, I guess, like there's just, and so I, I believe in pulling a few different things together, you know, so the hypnosis I found is all is so important to change at the fundamental core issue. That's at the core of, so hypnosis is about working with the subconscious mind that's working inside out. 
right? But you know what else is really good is outside in at the same time. Things like um, EFT tapping, emotional freedom technique tapping, that is somatic, right? That's the that's tapping on the body's meridian points. It's like acupuncture for the the spirit. They say the energy. So, it, you know, including that in it, right, in the hypnotherapy process, right, you do the the subconscious reprogramming and, and introducing uh, and planting like ideas of safety and security and goodness and reinform, you know, doing age regression to reinform the child, you know, the child that had misinformation didn't have context, they made decisions without having context. So, reinforming the child and, and establishing new beliefs, acknowledging and validating the pain, right? And and releasing those emotional triggers and then having practical tools while you're conscious to be able, like when your brain gets hijacked, to be able to come out of that, you know? I have a question about that. So most of us, at least the majority of us, believe in the, what you're talking about, the rewiring, because we believe in therapy. We believe in, you know, all these getting well techniques. I think the one thing about hypnotherapy where there's that like differential, that hang up, maybe that is the, uh, this idea that you're hypnotized. I mean, that's that, that, like, that there's this, that you have the ability to hypnotize, which, you know, depending on what, if you believe that's possible or not, but can you Some tell people me- are not susceptible to it, by the way. Interesting. Some people are not. So the the um, the irony is that all hypnosis is self hypnosis. And when people think about hypnosis, sometimes they think about stage hypnosis. They see people or what Hollywood shows. You know, they see they think of people like clucking like chickens on stage. Well. The funny thing about that is those are people typically who are like exhibitionists who, you know, are, um, you know, the people, that person that's just like a ham who loves the attention. And, and so they will go along with things. It's almost So they're like, not hypnotized, you don't think? They absolutely are hypnotized, but they're oh. going along with it because all, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. You have to agree to allow these things to happen. Right. Like under hypnosis, I can, I can have somebody under hypnosis, which is called somnambulism, right? It's it's a um, way of getting somebody deeply relaxed. It's almost like the deepest meditation that you've ever been in. Like your brain waves, just, they actually literally change, right? It's like just before you wake up and just before you fall asleep, it's that same sort of twilight. It's that sort of feeling where you're just super deeply relaxed and you're in a very safe place and you just feel so safe. And so that's, that's when the hypnosis can occur. But some people have such a strong critical factor, they don't allow it. So if some people are like not willing to feel their feelings, they're not a good candidate. Like, but so the thing about, especially childhood trauma, um, this gal I was just talking about, she had been trying EMDR, but it was re-traumatizing her because EMDR requires you go back to that scenario or situation and sort of relive it, but with uh, a, a different, like they take the motion out of it. Right. However, she just couldn't do it. It was too traumatizing. So in my mind, you know, she needs to have all these ideas of feeling safe and secure and confident. And that all needs to be established first before she could ever do anything like that. Right. She has trouble. She has problems. She can get to sleep. If she wakes up in the middle of the night, she can't go back to sleep because that's where her trauma happened was in the bedroom. Right. was in bed. That's where her trauma. So she can't go back to sleep. Right. So she terrible sleep issues, terrible food issues because the food, 
you know, is her insulation. It keeps her invisible. It keeps her safe. Just all that stuff. Right. So, but somebody who is safe and secure and they know that they are lovable, they know that they're going to survive, you know, just like that deep sense of safety. And I'm not talking we remove all reasonable, like I would not encourage people to get hypnotized and then you're going to be able to walk down a dark alley on skid row at 2 a.m. in the morning. Like that's not, we don't (laughs) take out your logical need for safety, right? That safety mechanism is still there, but you get to keep all the good things that serve you and release all the things that no longer serve you. You get to keep all, like they say that everything that we did, all those coping mechanisms like workaholism, it's like, oh, I can just work for hours on end, you know, burn myself out, crash and burn. It's like, well, you get to keep your drive. We don't want to let go of the workaholism to the point where it's destructive, like where you cross that line where your instincts are out of balance, but you get to keep your drive. You get to keep your work ethic. You get to keep all the good parts about it, but you also get to release the parts of it that no longer serve you. Right. Like the seeking external validation, you know, I'm doing make working so hard to get the money so that I can be happy. Right. Right. And this is more of like, I'm working hard and I'm doing all this stuff because I have a, a purpose driven mission. And that's what fuels me. That's very different than trying to get to something so that you can feel happy. Do you have an example of a case that you, you know, can uh, share about without revealing identity that? illustrates how an example of one of those coping mechanisms you wanted to let go of in the context of how it wasn't serving them anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I can speak about this personally in my own life, you know, so workaholism is a thing for in my life, right. You know, I have all these very, I'm super driven, but I was super driven because I grew up in lack and somewhere along the line, I got the message that if I had the money, then I could get the thing and then I could be okay. Right. Like I, I didn't feel good about who I was as a little girl. I remember girl, I remember the, I remember where I was exactly when it happened. We went to the store. There was this new store. I found these pants that were amazing. They had little ice cream, satin ice cream cones on the, on the, on the butt, on the pockets in the back. And they, I was like, I felt amazing. And my mom looked at me. She goes, all you have to do is work hard and get the money. You can buy these pants. And I was all, ah, and that burned in my, I was probably like 11 or 12 at the time. And it, cause they were outrageously expensive, but there was like a new girl at school and she was the cute girl that all the boys liked. And she dressed well and had pants like that or something. I related, I related to what you wore and how you look to the boys liking you. And if the boys liked you, then you'd be okay. Right. There was a lot of hoops to jump through, right? A lot of, a lot of obstacles, a lot of hurdles to overcome. So I think that's where the idea came that if I worked hard and made money, then I could buy the things and then I could attract the, the man. How do you reconcile? So one of the things that, that I struggle with is, and I don't know if hypnosis is the place to do this, but when, you know, I live in Orange County and, um, and one of the things that people talk about well so there's money and there's looks right and you know in my head the idea was like if you're skinny you can like then all the successful people will want to marry you right and while i understand logically all the things that go along with that like i get it and 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 it's and what you're talking about with the money, like while I understand that money doesn't make you happy, it does make it, it, it does remove a lot of stress. Like we, there is a lot of stress as it relates to money. 
how do you reconcile in these particular situations when we're talking about these coping mechanisms, this idea, like there's some truth to some of these things. And I find that a lot of the time when trying to work on these negative coping skills, it's like, well, money won't make you happy. It's just a means to an end, blah, blah, blah. And I think it negates this idea, like, but having more money makes life easier and having a lot of stress is very difficult to manage. And the more stress you have, the harder it is to be happy. So no, having the thing will not make you happy, but having the reduction of stress will give you a lot more leeway to try to attain it. And, or this, you know, the very successful man have the pick of the litter they tend to, and they tend to pick thin, beautiful women. And that's true. You know, like you're not going to, it's true. That's not, that's not. And so I think there's this, a lot of this, like money doesn't make you happy and let's remove that. And there's this almost like a spiritual gaslighting. It's, it's, it's gaslighting. And I've always felt this way too, this way where it's like, no, I'm not saying money makes you happier. And I'm not saying being skinny will get you this, or I'm not, but to say that it doesn't affect it or that it's not influential. It's, I feel that oftentimes when we talk about these issues, that part is negated. And it really bothers me because it, I, I spend all my time going, but you're not being honest. You're not acknowledging that there's truth to this. How do you work with that? I think that goes back to the idea that you get to keep all the good things and, and let go of the things that no longer serve you. And what, I, what, what really stands out about what you said is releasing the neediness, right? There's the neediness behind, I have to be skinny so that the guy... Right. For the, right. Okay. Yeah. It, because, what, because the universe always says yes. So if you, if you are constantly repeating the idea, I need to be skinny. So I, it's like, I need that all the universe hears is yes, you will continue to have the experience of needing. Right. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you and I both know we have seen heavy girls have beautiful boyfriends and lots of money and blah, blah, blah. There's, if it were, if it were the only, like, there's lots of heavy people who have lots of money. Right. So, but it's like, what are we focusing our attention on? Right. Like, are we looking for the easier, softer way? I don't know. But that is a little bit of negative conditioning saying, is it true? Absolutely. Are there heavy people still getting rich? And are that, that's not, it's so interesting. There was that book by Pam Grout. God, I wish I could remember the name of it. It was like 10 experiments to prove that the thoughts create reality, right? It's like, if you think about what makes people rich, there are fat people that are rich, skinny people that are rich, stupid people that are rich, smart people that are rich. I know smart people that are poor, skinny people that are poor. It's like, that is not the determining factor. Like if we're talking about getting money, that being thin and beautiful is not the determining factor. There are other ways. Totally. Right? Totally. Yeah. And, and and I guess I vote... I totally agree with you. I guess There are I'm, nice people who get rich. There are assholes who get rich. That's not, you know... But there is, I I have often heard of someone who struggled with weight and someone when I have said things over the years that about my belief system, like you, the world treats you differently. People treat you differently. You know, the more overweight you are, things like that. And, and I, and I, I feel like people deny some of these truths. Like life is easier when you have more money. 
You may life is not- easier when you have more money. Life is easier when you are more beautiful. Life is easier. Maybe not necessarily if you're smarter or not, because I know some pretty dumb people who are happy. So that's yeah, <laughs> some but pretty it, smart people. And, are and it can be way more complicated too. Like it can you, more money can truly be way more complicated. But I sometimes think in this as it relates to removing coping mechanisms, getting down to truths, working through belief systems, that there is this tendency in our line of to gaslight to pretend gaslighting. That is so brilliant. That's exactly what happens. Like there's no truth to some of the things. And that bothers me. That bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I always think it's like, you have to validate the pain first before you can get to the truth. You know, like that's a painful thought to think, oh, I need to be thin in order to get what I want. Right. Or it would be easier if I were thin uh, to get what I wanted. I was thin my whole damn life until I hit my early forties and I didn't start making money until I started getting fat. So maybe that's the secret. I don't know. (laughs) My whole life, like, you know, I was overweight as a kid. And so, but I was overweight as a kid after sexual trauma, which is that happened. And then the weight came. And what's interesting for me is my whole life, like I, you know, I've been pretty successful at everything I've attempted to do, including a drug addiction. I mean, I was working for and things I set my mind to, and depending on how you define success, of course. And I remember being in college, being sober, and every time I would get anything below an A, and this was like in a class of a hundred people at UCLA. So like, they didn't know who I was. I would see a B and think, if I were skinnier, I would have been able to study harder and I would have gotten a better grade. Like my brain has always, if I were blah, 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 then you were. And, that's, and, the, and I, that's the purpose of that's obsession. And the purpose of obsession is distraction and you're distracting from pain, right? So if we remove the pain, then there's no need for the obsession and there's no need for the distraction. And then you can just be free to be, to just live your life. You know, that's, that's really the goal. It's not that those things aren't true, but it's like, why? Then we have to ask, why is the brain latching on that idea? How is that keeping you safe? If you are safe in those, then you can stay where you are and you don't have to change. Well, I guess I'm safe because then then it's not about my brain, my intellect. Then it's not about, you know, like then it's not about my work ethic. Then it's not because the truth was truly the actual truth was I didn't want to work that hard. And, um, and so it's I work of responsibility and it's a fear of failure, right? What if I did give my all and I failed, but see, I experience when I, I experience more shame about when I didn't give my all than I did when, when I did, when I did put it all on the table. Like when I know I did my best and I failed, I actually experienced less shame. The most shame I experience is when i I know that wasn't my best and I know that, and and I have to live with the result of that. But I I think, you know, as it relates to obsession, as it relates to addiction, I believe that my brain will always tell me obsessive addictive things. So that, you know, we talk about alcoholic thinking, the alcoholic brain, right? And, you know, I, my brain will, I believe will always give me the first, the, the, the kind of, you know, knee jerk response is if one is good, 10 is better. And I mean, I, I, I got bleaching trays from my girlfriend, who's a dental hygienist years ago. And I, and I didn't, it, it, the direction said, 
you know, put them on for 15 minutes or whatever it was, 30 minutes. These are professional teeth whitening. Right, right, right. Well, I slept in them because if, <laughs> if, of course. if, if it's white, <laughs> if it works for 15 minutes, yeah. like just sleep in them, those things will be, you know, you'll be Gary Busey at the end of this, right? Yeah. So, I have never been in that kind of pain ever. I woke up and oh, I yeah, go in that's the worst kind. and and I go in and they, they put my, like soaked my teeth in fluoride. But what was in, like, I can tell you 30 stories like that, where yeah. if one is good, 10 is better. And it, not because I was trying to get high or not because I was trying, but my brain literally associates those things together. And so even if I were to remove a lot of the things that we're talking about, I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong here from what I've seen that we're ever going to be healed of the obsession. I think it's, it just feels to me like iterations every five years. Like I have to iterate on my sobriety every five ish years in order to update it, in order to upgrade it. There is evidence to to confirm your suspicion about that, right? Like Anna Lemke, she's a psychiatrist at, at Dopamine uh, Nation. Yeah, wrote she wrote Dopamine Nation at, at Stanford. Um, she was in the Social Dilemma. She's a fucking badass, is what she is. I can't wait to talk to her. I'm so but excited. yeah, she's one of those people that's like, you know, she's an addiction specialist, right? Yeah. So yeah. she's one of those people that says, yes, there is evidence to support the idea that if this is the way your brain is wired, it will always be that way. That that is that is valid. Um, what we don't know, especially uh for people like us, is that if you've never tried you know, a certain regimen of, you know, hypnotherapy and ongoing conditioning, whether that would lessen to the degree where you wouldn't be so extreme, right? Like we, we don't have that evidence yet. Because Who I am I it. if I'm not these ridiculous stories I have? Right. And there <laughs> it is. There is the commitment to identity, right? right? right. Your, your commitment to identity for being the extreme center, you know, that, you know, we use humor to cover pain that, you know, we have all these commitments to our identity because it is difficult. To sit. What I will pr- propose for your consideration is the idea that you wouldn't go to the gym once and expect to stay in shape forever. That's ridiculous, right? You wouldn't eat one salad and think I'm thin. <laughs> like we're not talking about being disillusioned because we are conditionally, you do have that default and without persistent, pervasive conditioning in a positive way, we go back to the default, right? We always go back to the default. So that's why, you know, persistent conditioning. I, so I'm developing this website called the Brainwashers Club. And it's kind of a funny little, I know it's not funny. It's just kind of a funny little name, but it, truly- well, tell, we are tell people all, where it comes from. So the story is, is that when I first got sober, I was dating this guy, I call him pre-Bob because <laughs> my husband's name <laughs> is Bob. <laughs> You've met Bob. Oh, I, love, I love me some Bob. I love free Bob. Yeah. So pre Bob was the guy I was dating before I met my husband. And uh, I was getting sober and going to all the meetings and learning all these things. And I was changing. I was assimilating all these new ideas. And I was just, my mind was blown. And finally, he, and I was breaking up with him because I realized, oh, you are not my person. And he was like, oh, I think those people are brainwashing you. And I was like, yeah, buddy. I knew he meant it in a bad way, but I'm like, that's exactly what happened. My brain needed some washing. I had all these negative ideas 
ideas, negative beliefs, negative conditioning. It's like, I needed some brainwashing, you know, (laughs) my poor dirty brain is so screwed up. I I needed that help. And so that's kind of where the idea of brainwashers club comes in is sort of like this online resource and meetings and things to help you know, maintain that conditioning. It's like, everyone's got a gym membership, right? But it's, but whether you use it or not is the difference between paying a fat tax or actually applying it to your life and and changing, (laughs) changing your body. Right. So that's, that's just what I'm proposing is that, is that we start implementing, you know, positive conditioning, positive brainwashing so that we can actually reach our goals and just be free, like gain control over the past, right? Be free of the past, not be controlled by it emotionally, you know, be in touch with our feelings so that we can let go, like, you know, the, the money and the weight, it's like, it's romance, finance, or fitness, right? Those are the three things. And if you, the big domino is to change the brain. When you knock that one down, it makes everything else irrelevant. It solves the problem or makes it irrelevant. And the, the truth of the matter is, you know what the spoiler alert is, is that it's all about learning to love yourself. Because if we love ourselves, I know this is so played out. Let's but it's that. true. It's but true. That's why it's true. Yeah. I know it's true. I know it's true. Save I'm... that for the very end because I didn't want to lose anybody. Yeah, you don't oh lose my it. God, self-love again. You're like, but nobody I think, wants to hear that. I think a big thing that, that a piece of that, and you did say this earlier, which is something that I've come to begrudgingly accept, which is that you can't, you can't hate yourself yourself into self-love. Yeah. You can't hate yourself into, you can't hate, you know, you can't hate yourself thin. You can't. Yeah. You can't. Here's the secret. All those self-protection mechanisms, your inner critic, the imposter syndrome, the self, those are all mechanisms to design to help you survive. Right. Like that's survival mode, but we're trying to get out of survival right. mode. Right. And to thrive. Right. Yeah. And to thrive. It's like, let's drop the weight. Let's save the money. Let's heal our relationships. People do it all the fucking time. We, they do it all the time. Uh, you are evidence of that. I am evidence of that. Maybe we're not perfect in all areas, but nobody is. Nobody yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And the struggle is never over. It's never over. Like people that struggle with food issues, you have to right. eat the rest of your life. You can't stop eating. We have to learn how to manage our emotions. And so that's, that's what this is about. This is hypnotherapy and healing the subconscious mind and the unconscious mind. That is, that's the magic that if I had a magic wand and to, and waved it, that's what it would change. It would change the subconscious belief system. What is the program that you're offering in terms of what you do with regard to hypnotherapy and addiction? So it's a five phase process and it's a combination of coaching and hypnotherapy. It's this five phase process that I learned in hypnotherapy, but I'm actually bringing a couple other modalities into the whole process. And it's really over a six month period. The five phases of the hypnosis is the beginning part. And then the six months is sort of like an ongoing support so that they can recondition. It takes some time to rewire the dopamine reward system. It takes time to overcome the default mode network and support is required. So the bulk of the activity happens in the beginning. The cool thing about hypnosis, it's largely passive. It's largely passive. I talk, you listen, 
you might have to do a little talking in response, right? But that's largely, and there's no like re-experiencing the trauma. That is not part of the process. Right. There is no re-experiencing the trauma. Right. And because there's only one of me, I'll be doing it on a application basis. So, uh, you know, and that's, uh, I'm currently setting up by the time this goes live, you'll be able to go to soberlifeschool.com and look for the hypnotherapy program. And it's by application because I'm just one person and it's heavy one-on-one. But so I just need to make sure that you're the right fit, that you're ready for this. Not everybody's going to be ready for this. And so but if you're not ready, I can help you. I can still help you get yeah, ready. Other things, yeah, yeah. There's other things you can help, can help you get ready. And that's why the coaching part is so important. Sometimes you need a little coaching until you can get ready for that. But yeah, it's 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 an intensive one-on-one process. So there's only one of me. <laughs> so that's, that's why we'll be doing it by application. I love it. So soberlifeschool.com. Yeah, that's where you'll be able to go to find the program. I was thinking about calling it like the limitless effect, but you know what I'm finding? The people who are suffering, they don't want to be limitless. They just want to have peace. Totally. It's so true. Yeah, they don't want to be seen. Yeah, they just, be they just want peace. Be best version of yourself. I'm like, dude, I just want to be like a better. I'll go for better. <laughs> yeah, just let me feel peaceful. Yeah, yeah. Just let me, some people just want the relief. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. So it was so interesting. So when I was interviewing these ladies about what is it that they want or hope to achieve, it's, it's never like, it's never like live my best life or be a certain weight, or it's like, I just want relief from this, Mm. these things that haunt me. Right. You know, and part of that, and I think, you know, if they feel safe and secure in the world, then they will would allow themselves to be like, and I also want right. to be financially successful and healthy right. and then like, be at a healthy weight and look good. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like until <laughs> yeah. you get the food, the water, the shelter, you can't even think about like living your best life, right? So yeah, the people you're talking to, they just want the relief. And then once that, you know, it's like relieving the hunger, so to speak, or relieving that in that hierarchy of needs. So once yeah, that safety, security, safety, oh, security, I, yeah. Without exception, when I when I'm working with somebody, like all the women I work with, when it, we do like a values assessment, security is always on the list. Yep, security is it's like it's a it's a need. It's not a want. It's a need. And once we have that need fulfilled, then we can start, you know, really thriving. So that's, that's where we'll get to. Yeah. It took my husband like eight years to figure out that like security is a need. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a need. Not a want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, well, I adore you. Thank you so much for coming on. Please tell everyone where all the places that they can find you, follow you on social media, follow your podcast, et cetera. Yeah. So I would direct everybody to soberlifeschool.com. That is like my hub website and it has links to the podcast, which is ODAT podcast on Instagram. <laughs> ODAT chat is the website, but it's very confusing because that's not the name. But if you just search one day at a time podcast on iTunes, that's where they could find the podcast. I'm I'm currently obsessed with Instagram. So if people want to follow me on that, I'm putting all my best stuff on Instagram, all the hypnosis and self-care and all that stuff. That's ODAP podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Arlene. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. 
LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.